Last week we finished Isaiah 40. I'm going to come back to 4027 and get a rip at 41. As I was reading this, reading a commentary along with it, and one of the things that I have mentioned, and I will mention now again, is prophecy at the time it is given are cryptic. They are in poetic imagery, they are in riddles, they are in dark sayings that the people at the time don't understand. Yeshua being one of the poster children for that, when he starts speaking in parables, his disciples come to him and say, we don't understand what you just said. And he says, it's given to you to understand, but it's not given to them, lest they turn and be healed because they're going into exile. And then he explains it to them. So Isaiah here is in what I would call cryptic mode. And I was reading a commentary about what's going on here. And I can think of at least two other valid explanations for what's going on in that chunk besides the one that was in the commentary. That's not the way to say it. Not valid explanations, plausible explanations. And none of the three, am I sure, is correct. So we're in that kind of thing, and I will give you interpretations as I think it could be, as perhaps commentaries think it could be, and as, in some cases, Judaism thinks it could be, because they're all wildly different, and they're all reading the same passage of Scripture. There was a preacher one time, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but when God speaks in prophecy, he doesn't say it so that you can go to the stock market the next day. In other words, you only realize that the prophecy was what it was after it's happened. And we're in that kind of a section of Isaiah right now. So anyway, let's start at Isaiah 40:27, and then we'll go on into 41. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known... Have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. There are a couple of different explanations to what I just read. So in 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Well, that could be, and in fact, I may have talked about it that way last time, God isn't really watching and doesn't really care what we do. Remember I read Psalm 73 last time, where the wicked say, God doesn't pay any attention to what we do, so we might as well grab all we can. That's one way it could be read. I was listening to a Christian radio commentator on the way over here tonight, and, and I will not give his name because I don't want to pick a fight with him. And, you know, he's a good guy, but he apparently studied to be a rabbi and has become a Christian. Very, very, very anti-law, anti-Torah. He would read this, and I'm putting words in his mouth. I did not hear him read this, but based on what he said this evening, he would say, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Well, what right are we talking about? And the subject of his talk tonight is people obey the law with the intention of obligating God. In other words, if I do everything right, then you owe me a blessing. So you can look at it that way. As a matter of fact, I don't agree with his interpretation, but as I say, he is what he is, and I don't particularly want to pick a fight with him. There isn't any point in it. 
He believes what he believes, and I believe what I believe. So I'm not giving you two ways, right? Way number one is God doesn't really pay attention and care what we do so we can do anything we want. In other words, grab all you can because life is short and no, no telling what happens next. Way number two is by my good behavior, I have earned a reward from the Lord. And both this preacher and I agree, God doesn't owe you anything. We both agree on that point. God is God and you're not. And I think Yeshua said it very well. If you just obey, what thanks do you expect? You are simply doing your duty. No problem with any of that. Third way that you could read it, and that's out of Deuteronomy. When Israel is up to their hips in hairy Babylonians or hairy Assyrians or hairy Romans or whatever hairy bunch of guys has invaded them, what Moses says they will say is, this would never have happened if God hadn't abandoned us. So you could look at it that way, as in our troubles are caused because God has abandoned us. And what Moses says is, yeah, you're right. And the reason he will have abandoned you is because you have broken the covenant. We conveniently forget that part, that breaking the covenant causes God to turn his back. And so there's three ways you can interpret that simple phrase. So let's now read it in context again, having got all that, or at least asserted all that. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The sense of the question is, God doesn't seem to be doing anything, or God doesn't seem to be doing what we expect. That's the sense of the question from Israel. The answer from God is, I haven't forgotten anything. I'm God, you just don't know what I'm doing. And you don't know what I'm doing because I haven't told you. And until I tell you what I'm doing, you're not going to know what I'm doing. I mean, that's essentially the answer. But it is not the case that I have lost track. It is not the case that my attention has wandered. It is not the case that I am not able to do what I say I will do. But what I was talking about in my three interpretations is the question can come from at least three different perspectives. 29, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. As I get older, I look at the young people who are scampering around, and I'm wondering, where is all that energy coming from? He says that even those who are full of youth and vigor will faint and grow weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord, as opposed to those who are in their natural youth and depending on their natural youth, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And we gave a little riff on that last time. But I wanted to start there because now let's go down to 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let your peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Now, I interpret that. Listen to me in silence. That is, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. It's where you grab them by the stacking swivel and you bring their face up real close so that you have their attention and you say, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. Verse 2, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? 
He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Again, it isn't real clear who we're talking about here. Could be the Assyrians, because everybody except Egypt that invades Israel comes from the north and the east. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, all those folks come from the east and they come down from the north. The commentary I read hangs its hat on verse 3. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. According to this commentary, that cannot be the Assyrians because the Assyrians have trod that path before and in fact have trod that path several times. Therefore, it must be Cyrus. And Cyrus will get named later on in, in Isaiah. Cyrus is a Persian king. He is the one who allows Israel to return after the Babylonian captivity. And the thing that convinces him to allow them to return is the Jews bring this book of Isaiah to him and show him where he is mentioned by name in their sacred scriptures. This is written well before the Babylonian captivity, like at least a hundred years before the Babylonian captivity. So when the Jews show up in Cyrus's court and says, it says right here, Cyrus, here's your name. He's kind of impressed. So anyway, this particular commentary that I was reading says, well, I mean, that, since we're going to start talking about Cyrus in a couple chapters anyway, and since Cyrus at this point had not trod that path before, that must be what we're talking about. Perfectly reasonable explanation. May or may not be true. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil. Saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Now, I said last time as we entered into this poetic section, which starts in the previous chapter, every one of these chapters is going to have one or two interludes where he's talking about idols. Back in 40, we introduced the subject, and you'll have this running extolling of God, his power, his pre-existence, his eminence, the things that he's able to do. And as we go through this, interspersed in there is going to be these snide comments about people who trust in idols. There's four, five, six of these in this section of Isaiah. The sense here, the coastlands of seen are afraid, the ends of the earth tremble, I am assuming that is in front of this conqueror that is coming from the east. And what they are doing in strengthening each other is obviously forming military alliances, which are not going to do them any good. And they are furthermore constructing and renewing their relationship with their idolatry and their false gods. And all of this is by way of saying none of that's going to do them any good. Verse 8. This is the first of a bunch of mentions of a servant. 
And so when we get to Isaiah 42, you're going to get what all Christianity agrees is a messianic passage about the servant. And rabbis will say, no, 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 no. That's not talking about the Messiah. That's talking about Israel. Again, this thing where there's a couple of different interpretations of the same passage of Scripture. This particular invocation of the servant is specifically about Israel. The next one will not be so clear that it's about Israel, and since it's quoted in the New Testament, Christianity believes, rightly, I, I'm not arguing with it, I'm just saying that's how they get it, that it's talking about Yeshua. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will keep you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Obviously, we're talking about Israel. It lists virtually every title of Israel here to make sure that you don't have any doubt of who we're talking about, right? But notice, this is after the dispersion. Because he says, I have brought you from the farthest corners of the earth. It is clear who it is, but it is not at all clear when it is. Because there have been various returns of parts of Israel from exile to the land. We are right now in the latest one. And in the return from exile, starting clear back at the exodus, Judah leads coming back into the land. So again, Judah has led and have come back into the land. There are those who speculate, everybody hear the word I just used, speculate, that the rise in anti-Semitism around the world right now is God's way of picking his people up and moving them out of the four corners of the earth and back to Israel. Maybe, maybe not. I'm saying there are those who speculate that. But this passage from 8 through 10, very clear who we're talking about, not at all clear what the timing is. Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, what we are talking about here is the unified nation. We are not talking about Israel as in the northern kingdom and Judah. It's Israel and Jacob, which is the entire nation. So you have to figure out the context when Israel is mentioned. Are we talking about the sons of Jacob as we are here, or are we talking about the northern kingdom as we are when it typically says Israel and Judah? I am of the opinion, and this is a two-house congregation that has not been lost by God. They are out there in the world. He knows who they are, and they are going to be returned. Verse 11, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confused. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. And this is talking to Israel, Jacob, which is to say the entire nation, which is both Judah and Levi that we know of, as well as the lost tribes that we have lost track of. So it's all of them. Verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, 
new, sharp, and having teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Now, what the heck does that mean? I give you a couple of thoughts. Thought number one is I don't know. One of the things it could be is during the thousand-year reign when Israel is reunited under the Messiah in the land of Israel, the nations are going to rise up and attack them. So this could be a straight military prophecy. Option number two, which I actually like better, is the thing that Israel has done as it has spread throughout the world is it has spread the knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and has brought the whole world into contention about whether or not we have one true living God who is the God that watches over Israel or whether we have multiple pagan gods that we should worship. And I see the threshing sledge there as going through the pagan world and bringing the knowledge of the one true living God to the world. That's option number two, which I like better. I will suggest one possible understanding of Jacob, you worm, is Jacob, I am saving you, I am restoring you, I am supporting you because I have a covenant, not because you deserve it. And furthermore, Moses says the same thing at the end of Deuteronomy. And he says, he will restore you. He will fight for you. He will do what he says he will do. Not for your sake, but for his name's sake. Because he's made certain promises and he has decided to abide by the promises he has made. And it isn't your virtue that is causing these things to happen. It is God's steadfast grace and goodness. That's the best I can do with the world. So anyway, the two interpretations that I can come up with at least for verses 14 through 16, interpretation number one is we're talking about essentially the Battle of Armageddon. Interpretation number two is by sending Israel out into the world, he is in fact a threshing sledge with sharp teeth who has gone through the pagan world and reorganized it. Verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water, there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and pine together, that men may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. I see that as a continuation of Jacob, you worm. God saying to Jacob the worm, don't worry, I got this. And oh, by the way, not only have I got it, but I am perfectly capable of doing whatever I say that I'm going to do. 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, 
and your works are less than nothing, an abomination is he who chooses you. The prophet is talking about the power and the greatness of God. We're talking about a regathering of Israel that is yet future from the time this is being written. You've all heard the line from the fiddler on the roof. Couldn't you choose somebody else for a while? In other words, those who still even know that they are Jews or know that they are Hebrews, looking up at their circumstances and saying to God, couldn't you choose somebody else for a while? I mean, this is really tough duty. And so what God is saying here is, I've got this. My ways are not something you're going to understand until after they happen, and then you probably won't completely understand them. Don't worry about it. And furthermore, do not be enticed with idols because the question you have to ask an idol or someone who worships an idol is, okay, give us a prophecy here. Tell us what's going to happen because they can't. And one of the things that the prophets of Israel do, especially those who make it into the book, is they very often give short-range prophecies that come to pass during the time that the prophet is alive. That authenticates them. If you can foretell what's going to happen, that is an authentication thing. And then they start going deep like Isaiah is, and he's clear at the end of the age. God is not at all concerned with what the idols think they can do, or those who worship idols think they can do. What he's concerned with is what his people are doing and their relationship with him. This is extremely sarcastic. The idea is, all right, you got this idol you've set up. Let's see if predict something. Tell us something that's going to happen. We're waiting. Verse 24 again. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. The idea isn't the idols are a problem because they are nothing. The problem is people who worship idols. 25. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name, he shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as a potter treads clay. Not terribly sure who we're talking about here. It could be Cyrus, as the commentary thinks. It could also be the Assyrians, because the Assyrians are, in fact, raised up and called by God to deal with Israel. Not sure we're talking about. But again, this is a Gentile conqueror who is coming from the north. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem the herald of good news. Now, remember, we have just talked about idols and mockingly said, okay, go ask your idols to tell you what's going to happen next. They can't. Now we're saying, who has declared it from the beginning? Jehovah has declared it from the beginning through his prophets. 27, I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Well, hang on. You know, we've been going through this now for a while. It is not good news that the Assyrians are coming down. What's the good news? I was the first to say to Zion, and I give to Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem. Zion being a mountain inside of Jerusalem. What's the good news? That the Assyrian invaders are going to bounce. 
Remember, we just did the business where the Assyrian invaders were outside the walls of Jerusalem trash talking. And then that night, 185,000 of them were killed. So the good news is that the Assyrians who are coming down are not going to prevail. The good news is not the Assyrians are coming down. So I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. I'm suggesting that's the Assyrians. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. That's Isaiah, who says they're not going to prevail. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Who are among these? When I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. Who are these? The idols. Remember, above this, we had the phrase, hey, go talk to your idols. Have them predict what's going to happen. And God says through Isaiah here, I'm predicting what's going to happen. The Assyrians aren't going to prevail. Among these, the idols, there is no answer. Those counselors are worthless. 42. Up until this time, we have been talking about Israel and Judah, or Israel and Jacob, being the servant. Now... 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Since this is quoted in the New Testament, Christianity says, that's Yeshua. And by the way, I agree. I'm not arguing here. I am simply saying the Hebrews or the Jews will look at that and say, wait a minute, no, the servant is Israel here in all cases. So behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And again, all of this, if we go back to the metaphor of the threshing sledge, one of the things I see of the threshing sledge is Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, scattering out throughout the world and bringing the knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true living God, to the rest of the world and being a sharp-toothed threshing sledge to those who are idolaters. If you look at it that way, then this being Israel follows. I don't have any problem with this being Yeshua. What I'm trying to do is show you how other people, specifically rabbinic Jews, can look at the same thing and reasonably come to the conclusion that it's not. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And again, if you are a rabbi, that's Israel. Now, a couple of things. Christianity sees this, as do I, that this is the first coming of Yeshua, where he comes as the suffering servant. He does lift up his voice. He drives people from the temple and a bunch of other stuff. But he is not coming to be a conqueror on a white horse like he will the second time around. The first time he comes, he's riding on a donkey, which is coming in a non-military, peaceful way. That's what riding on a donkey symbolizes. Second time he comes, he's going to be riding on a white horse. Very different animal. A bruised reed he will not break. This is a metaphor that you will see in a number of places in Scripture. The idea of leaning on a reed, 
For example, the prophet talks about Egypt as being a staff of reed, which is to say a staff that will not hold you up if you lean on it. So the idea here of a bruised reed is an even weaker staff. A reed that isn't bruised isn't very strong. A bruised reed is even less strong. So the idea there is is a staff or a support. Verse 5, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens, and that's Elohim, Yehovah. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Jehovah. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This goes back to the question to the idols. God is saying here, behold, I am telling you before it happens, and my word is going to come true, unlike the idols. Up until here, you can very easily see how somebody who did not believe in Yeshua could see Israel here. If you look at Israel as the one who is given as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, that's their job. They're supposed to go out and spread the word. Hey, don't get me wrong, I am not talking against the Christian understanding of this. I am simply saying that our Jewish brothers see this very differently. And it isn't because they're in rebellion. They just don't see it the same way. Going back to the thing I started off with, this whole section of Isaiah is in uh, metaphors, dark sayings, and so forth. It would not have been understood by the people at the time. And as I hope I have sort of shown you, it isn't completely understood by us either, because a lot of it is yet future. One of the things that I encountered very early on in my Christian walk is what I would call arrogant Christians who have these little traps that they lay for the Jews, you know, where they take you to this passage of Scripture and say, gotcha. And I'm saying that's not the way to do it. The one who has to convince them is God. Shama